long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Thanks so much, Beth. And we're going to continue reading the first seven verses of chapter two. This is the, uh, the first of these seven letters now. The, the, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ speaks to his church, and the first church he speaks to is the church of Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, let's just pray before we look at these verses together. Lord Jesus Christ, you are a glorious risen saviour and long ago you spoke to your church and today we want to hear you speak again we pray that through the word and through the power of the holy spirit you would speak to this church and speak into our hearts and our lives give us ears to hear give us hearts that are open to receive what you want to say and we pray that we be strengthened and encouraged challenged and built up through the ministry of your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have vague recollections from when I was at primary school of learning about the life cycle of a plant or a plant. Uh, But in those days, it was the life cycle of a plant. And although it's a very long time since I was in primary school, I don't imagine the life cycle of plants has changed very much since then. Um, Basically, what I recall is you have a little seed and a seed is sown in the ground and as the uh, temperature of the ground warms up, the seed germinates and it 
sprouts and you get this little plant and that will eventually grow and it will flower and bear fruit and in the fruit there are seeds and the seeds eventually drop and fall into the ground and the same thing happens again while the older plant just keeps getting older and eventually it dies but these new little plants have sprung up from the seeds. It's wonderful, isn't it? It's a really amazing process. And I've since found that all sorts of things have a life cycle. I mean, as, as people we do, don't we? Um, we're conceived, we're born, we grow, become teenagers, become young adults, we might marry, we might reproduce, and then we get a bit older and a bit older, we might have grandkids, we retire, and we die. That's basically how it works, isn't it? <laughs> but by then... These other little kids are growing and they will also get the opportunity to retire and die. <laughs> so there are just these wonderful life cycles. In, in fact, uh, many other things have life cycles. Businesses have life cycles. Cities have life cycles. Suburbs have life cycles. Organisations, schools and churches. Uh, typically with churches, there are often four phases in the life cycle of a church. The initial phase is when the church is planted, and usually when a church is planted, there's, there's vision and excitement and energy. Uh, there's a real sense of what we're about, and you're often in that initial phase of church planting, there's almost no resources. Uh, there's no structure, there's no building, there's, there's almost no nothing, but there's a lot of passion and excitement and enthusiasm and great gospel work may well take place. And then eventually it'll go into a second stage where the church starts to stabilise and it starts to become more established. It might get a pastor, it might get a building, it, might, it's, it starts to get programmes and ministries. Often the growth slows a little bit, but this is still a growing church and it's a healthy, stable church. And then what typically happens is eventually it'll head into the third phase in the life cycle of a church, which is where the church basically plateaus. And often it plateaus when it's quite large. And so it looks like a really, really healthy church. Uh, it's got programs, it's got ministries, it might have multiple staff, it has resources and facilities and pulpits, new pulpits, has, uh, has all sorts of good stuff going on. And people come and they go and they retire and they die and they're born and, and life's going on in that church. But actually the reality is, if, if you look at it, it's basically plateaued. It's not really growing anymore. And eventually, if something doesn't change, the church will head into the fourth stage, which is decline. And the members of the church get older and older. There's not much new growth. There's not much ministry the church starts to struggle and that might go on for a length of time until one day the church closes its door, the building is sold and it becomes an art gallery. Well, that's, that's how it can go with a church. That has been the life cycle of many, many churches. And I think it's always healthy for a church to ask itself, where are we at in the life cycle of a church? I don't know your church very much at all. 
But I wonder where you would say you are at in the life cycle of a church. In a growth phase? In a plateau phase? In a decline phase? Dying? Doesn't look like it, but we've got to ask the question. The danger, actually, that the phase a church is in is a phase which I haven't mentioned. It's called denial. Uh, I have a daughter who's um, rather creative and artistic and imaginative, and uh, she has a T-shirt. You may have seen it around. I've seen other girls wearing it as well. It says on it, someone told me I was a dreamer. I nearly fell off my unicorn. (laughs) Some churches are dreamers. And what they need is a dose of reality. And that's actually what Jesus gives seven churches in what is now modern-day Turkey, then known as Asia Minor. Seven churches that the risen, glorious Lord speaks to. In chapter 1, Beth just read that vision of Jesus Christ in majesty and power, the, the risen, exalted, enthroned Christ. And he speaks to the church and he knocks some of them off their unicorns. The first church actually he speaks to is the church of Ephesus. And you have spent a number of weeks uh, looking at the letter to the Ephesians. And, and it's a fascinating church because it's the church that we have a fuller picture of than I think any other church in the New Testament. We have something like a 40-year history of the church of Ephesus. And so what I want to look at with you this morning is its past journey, its current condition when Jesus speaks to it here in Revelation 2, and its desperate need. Let's start with its past journey. Some churches are what you might call epicenter churches, churches from which a great movement ripples out and impacts the whole region. Uh, Churches with strong ministries, perhaps with charismatic leaders, uh, with great gospel work, and and growing influence into the other uh, areas surrounding it. They plant churches that plant churches. You may be able to think of churches like that today that are epicenter churches. Ephesus was like that in its day. Uh, Ephesus was a bustling cosmopolitan city. Uh, It was a dynamic city, lots of people there. It was a port city. It was wealthy. It was influential. And it was the center of worship of the goddess Diana, or Artemis, of the Ephesians. So an idolatrous city, full of temples, uh, full of idol worship, but full of trade and commerce and people. And in that strategic world city, a church was planted. It was planted in the early 50s AD. Uh, Paul went there briefly on his second missionary journey, and then he went back on his third missionary trip. And it's not bad. It's not a bad start, is it, if Paul, the Apostle Paul, is your church planter. And on the core team, there's Priscilla and Aquila. Some of you will know that they're kind of a power couple in the uh, early church. And one of the guys they're training is a bloke named Apollos. And Apollos became one of the powerful 
eloquent preachers of the first century. So pretty good core team. And it seems that uh, in, in those early years, there was an absolutely wonderful ministry in the Ephesian church. Paul actually stayed there and pastored in the Ephesian church for three years. It was the longest time he had in any local church. We read in Acts chapter 19 of the brilliant ministry that took place there. There was a wonderful outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There were many, many conversions. Lots of people became Christians, and so many actually that it really upset the trade of idols and statues going on and caused a riot in the city. Uh, it, w- it was a place where God was powerfully at work. And from that church, they started to plant other churches. Uh, Laodicea, Colossae, uh, surrounding towns and cities in that area had churches planted out of Ephesus. It's quite possible that most of the other seven churches that we read of in Revelation 2 and 3 were planted out of Ephesus. Some scholars estimate that Ephesus planted 13 other churches in the region. During that powerful ministry, Paul trained a group of local church leaders. He raised up elders within the church and equipped them to be shepherds of the flock. And in Acts chapter 20, we have recorded the, uh, the final training session that he had with the eldership team. He was leaving and he teaches them finally to be shepherds of the flock, how to care for the flock. And he warns them, false False teachers may come in. Wolves may come and attack the flock. Watch out. Be on your guard. Shepherd the church of Jesus Christ. Well, in time then, that church in Ephesus became an established, stable church. It entered into that typical second phase of ministry, a robust, healthy church. And Paul later on wrote a letter back to that church, and it's the letter of Ephesians that you have been studying. And one of the striking things, I think, about the letter uh, to the Ephesians is that it doesn't really address major problems. Uh, the letter of the First Corinthians is just addressing a series of disasters. <laughs> the church in Corinth is just chaos. They're crazy in, in Corinth. Galatians, they've, they've lost the plot on the gospel. But Ephesians, it's really just a lovely, lovely letter because there are no major issues to deal with. The first three chapters basically lay out in in gratefulness the gospel, the richness of the gospel. And the second three chapters talk about how to live the gospel. Well, we hear of this church a few years later, though, and things have changed. Paul discovered that There were false teachers coming into the church in Ephesus. They were attacking the church. And so Paul now leaves Timothy there to pastor the church and sort out the problem with the false teachers. And later on, he writes two letters to Timothy. First Timothy is written when the Ephesian church is probably about 13, 12, 13 years old. Two Timothy is written when the Ephesian church is probably about 15 years old. And I can't be sure, but I have a sense that maybe by then, maybe by about the 15-year mark, the church has entered that phase of 
of plateau. Certainly it's entered a phase where there are problems and difficulties. Paul urges Timothy to guard the gospel. He tells him to suffer for the gospel. He urges him to pass on the gospel and entrust it to reliable men who entrust it to others. He says, preach the word, Timothy. Preach it in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction because a time's coming when people will have itchy ears and they'll just gather around them the preachers who say what they want to hear. So by then, the church of Ephesus has got some trouble. But now we jump to the letter that Jesus writes to the church. The risen Lord speaks to the same church now in the, in the 90s of the first century AD, about 40 years later. And we'll see how it's doing in a moment. We'll have a look at its condition shortly. But I think it's just worth reflecting on, isn't it, that churches have journeys. Churches change over time. Great leaders come and go. Ministries come and go. New threats and challenges arise. And wherever you see strong gospel work taking place, you can expect that Satan will also attack it. In fact, the last chapter of the letter to the Ephesians warns, doesn't it, about spiritual warfare. It's good to look back as a church. It's good to look back and be thankful for past leaders and thankful for past growth and thankful for past ministry thankful for past blessings but a church cannot live in the past every generation has to recommit to the gospel every generation has to preach the word every generation has to pass the gospel on every generation has to raise up new gospel workers and leaders and every generation has to be prepared to suffer for the gospel and pay the price for faithfulness. Sometimes when I um, peruse a real estate magazine, uh, I, I see houses advertised occasionally with this description, original condition. <laughs> you know what original condition means? Original condition means utterly derelict. It means this place has never been updated. In the last 80 years, no renovations, no upgrades. The kitchen's just how it was in the 1870s. The wallpaper has never been changed. The place is a nightmare. Original condition. It's not the original condition of the place at all. It's what the place has become after nothing's been done for decades. And you know, some churches could be described with the label original condition. 
It's not actually the original condition of the church at all. It's the result of a church where each generation has failed to take ownership of the ministry of the church and the work of the gospel. And they haven't upgraded the ministries and they haven't renovated the work of the, the gospel in the community. They haven't kept up with the fact that their, their suburb is changing and their city is changing and everything else is changing. No, the church is in original condition, which means it's actually run down and dilapidated. There have been no new members for the last 120 years. I, I met with a man, this is a true story, I met with a man the other day who um, he, he said, I'm the youngest person in the church. He was in his 60s. He was running the youth group. <laughs> the only person in the youth group was his wife. <laughs> you know, sometimes churches like that, they're, they're just stuck years ago. Every generation in a church has to own the gospel afresh, renew their commitment to the work, re-engage with the ministry of the gospel. And that's, that's what all of you here are called to do. It's not the job just of the pastor or the leaders. They are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, equipping you, teaching you, praying for you, encouraging you to work on the house, to keep renovating it, to keep updating it, to keep working on it so that it's not a church in original condition. Well, what was the condition then of the Ephesian church? We've seen something of its past journey. What was its current condition? Well, Christ, the risen Lord, knows the state and the condition of every church. With his blazing eyes, he sees all. He's walking among the lampstands, and the lampstands are symbols of these churches. He, he walks amongst the church, and he knows the churches. And like an astute landlord, he knows the condition of every house. If we think of these seven churches as, as seven houses, then basically the landlord says of these seven churches that two of them are in shocking condition and may have to be demolished. Three of them are in very mixed condition and need a lot of work. Two of them are in good condition, but they're in really tough neighbourhoods. And that means then, as you, as you read the seven letters, all seven churches either have problems or challenges or both. And you know, that is actually church reality. Uh, I've always said that choosing a church is choosing which imperfections you can live with. Uh, There's some imperfections I just can't live with. <laughs> there are others you have to live with. So in that regard, you know, ladies will understand, it's a bit like choosing a husband. Uh, you know, don't look for perfect. Just, just look for the imperfections that you can live with. And, 
And with choosing a church, you are going to live with imperfections. Every church will have struggles and challenges and problems. And what we're actually looking for is, is a church that we can contribute to. We so, say, well, actually, I think I know how to renovate that room. I think I could do some work on that and contribute to that. Well, it turns out that Ephesus, the Ephesian church, 40 years later is actually one of those two houses that the landlord says it's in shocking condition and may have to be demolished. Not all is bad. As you read this letter, not all is bad. In fact, the Lord Jesus starts off very, very positively. Uh, he commends this church in verses 2 and 3. He commends, if you have a look at those verses, their hard work, their toil, their patient endurance. Uh, this is a church where people get stuck in. They serve. They're on the rosters. They turn up when their name's on the roster. They come to church. They're, they're there every week, not just every third week like in so many churches these days. They, they go to church on time in Ephesus. It's unbelievable, but they turn up on time. They're, they're committed to the life of the church. More than that, they're concerned for the truth of the church. Uh, Jesus commends them for resisting false teachers. They test and expose teachers who claim to be gospel teachers, but they've not got the gospel straight. In particular, they opposed a, a group called the Nicolaitans. We don't know much about them, but they're an early, um, early heretical group in the first century Christian church, probably tied up with sexually immoral practices. And the church in Ephesus opposes that kind of stuff. So here you have a sound Orthodox, committed, hard-working church. And the Lord commends those things because he sees them. And I think that's a lovely thing. The Lord sees your hard work. And I have no doubt some of you have poured years of hard work into this church. And the Lord sees it. And he commends hard work and commitment. And he commends gospel faithfulness. And he knows some of you have worked for years to make sure that this church is a Bible-believing, gospel-hearted church. And the Lord says, yes, I see that. And the Lord commends that. And so you wonder, what could be wrong with a church like that? But there is something wrong. Devastatingly wrong. They have lost their first love. You know what it's like when two people first fall in love? I, I remember when I um, fell in love with the lady who is now my wife. I was at university, so was she. I was absolutely besotted. I just, I fell head over, head over heels in love with her. Um, I, I wrote all sorts of soppy poetry. I've never written poetry in my life. I wrote ridiculous stuff. I loved her to bits. I would see her as much as possible. I jeopardized my studies because I, my interest in books diminished and my interest in this woman increased. It, it, there was this, this deep love for her. And in the Ephesian church, we've seen that that's how the church began. 
great gospel zeal, great passion to share in the gospel, great commitment to standing up for Jesus in a hostile city, great commitment to planting other churches. It had a heart for Jesus, a heart for the gospel, a heart for evangelism, a heart for the lost. But now their heart has grown cold. And the sobering reality in this letter is gospel orthodoxy without gospel love is apostasy. It doesn't look like it, but that's the fact. Gospel orthodoxy without gospel love is apostasy. And Jesus says that they are in danger of their lampstand being removed. That means you're in danger of no longer being a church of Jesus Christ. You're in danger of your church dying or being removed by Christ. And the image of a lampstand is powerful, isn't it? Because a lampstand is meant to, to give light. Jesus is walking among these seven lampstands. They're meant to radiate the light of the gospel into their communities. They're meant to be faithful witnesses spreading the light of Jesus Christ. And if they don't, then the lampstand is useless and will be removed. Sometimes I think we treat the gospel and we treat the word of God like a sword. But not a sword with which we fight. A sword in a display cabinet. And we have the sword up in the display cabinet to protect it. And it's sharp. And we we get it down and we polish it. And we admire it. And people come in and say, look at the sword. It's absolutely magnificent, isn't it? It's the best sword around. And everyone admires the sword. And we go into Bible studies and we study the sword. And we preach about the sword. And we protect the sword. But we never fight with the sword. It stays in its cabinet. That's how Bible-believing, orthodox churches can be apostate. They're big on the Bible, but they're not actually doing the work of the gospel. Well, what is Ephesus to do? That was the condition of the church. It's very, very challenging, I think. What were they to do? How do you renovate a house like that? Well, we've looked at its past journey. We've looked at its current condition Lastly, let's think about its urgent need. Jesus tells them what to do. And really, there are three words that summarize what he says. Remember. Repent. Recover. Those are the three things they must do. First of all, remember. And it's, it's not simply remember the past. It's not just remember your earlier leaders, remember the golden days. No, it's remember what you were really all about. Remember why you were established. Remember why you're really here. You know, you could have a life-saving club, couldn't you, that that is established to save lives. But over time, it builds club rooms and and develops a... um, just a wonderful sort of life-saving club culture and they have parties and functions and, and they just love belonging to the club and in time, they don't actually save any lives, they just look after the club room and have functions. And that life-saving club needs someone to say, hang on, we're meant to be saving lives. 
And you can have churches that are like that, and that's how Ephesus had become. And churches like that need someone to say, hang on. We're not just a club. We're meant to be saving lives. We've got to remember what the church is really about. And so churches that remember what they're meant to be really about and realise that they're not that anymore have to do the second thing, which is repent. The, the first part of repentance is actually to confess that things are not as they should be. We may have to confess with Ephesus that we've lost our first love. We may have to confess that we've become complacent. Or maybe we have to confess that we've neglected evangelism or prayer or love. We may be a church that has to confess there's been moral failure or there's been disunity or there's been leadership failure. We, we might be a church that has to confess we've been proud We've been an arrogant church. Or we might be a church that has to confess we've deviated from the gospel. We're not as strong on the gospel and the word of God that we use, as we used to be. A church will have to think about whether there are things it needs to confess. But repentance is more than confessing it begins with that but repentance actually means turning around completely it's a complete change of mind and so the third thing jesus says then verse 8 remember therefore where you have fallen repent and do the works you did at first it's the word recover recover now your first love recover your love of the gospel recover your heart for the lost Recover your commitment to prayer and utter dependence on the Holy Spirit. Recover your zeal and your enthusiasm. Recover your joy. And how do you recover that? Only by going back to Jesus. The, the one shown there in chapter 1, glorious, majestic, risen, victorious, powerful, and yet loving, caring for his church, wanting his church to love him and to know his blessing and know his grace and radiate his light. You know, I think each church needs regularly to have conversations about what it needs to remember and what it needs to repent of and what it needs to recover. That those are really good things just to talk to each other about. Talk about them over coffee. You'd be tempted to talk about the sermon. Don't, don't just talk about the sermon. Talk about, so how are we going? Uh, talk about them with your, with your friends hanging out with some other church people, this is, this is great stuff to talk about. Talk about them in your, what do you call them, small groups, home groups, community groups, fellowship groups, cell groups, 
whatever you call them, there. This is great stuff to talk about. This is what leaders should be talking about when they meet. This is great stuff for young people to talk about. When the youth get together, here's the stuff to talk about. So where are we at as a church? How can we be the generation that now commits to taking the gospel on further today? I put it to you, those are the best conversations you can have as members of the church. Not the conversations that are mainly about the pulpit or the pastor, but the ones that are about the life cycle of the church. And whether you still have your first love for Jesus. Well, Jesus finishes this letter with great encouragement in verse 7. To the one who conquers. I think that's to the one who overcomes this lack of love. To those who remember and repent and recover. To such people, Jesus doesn't promise that they will become a successful church. That, that's probably what we would like him to promise. <laughs> repent and I'll grow you and make you very famous. No, he promises something way better than that. Look at verse 7. To the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. That's exactly what was lost through sin in the first place. Through Adam and Eve's lack of love for God and their disobedience, they forfeited paradise. And they were forbidden to eat of the tree of life and live forever. But now Jesus says to us, he says to everyone, if you, if you have love for me, if you respond to my love, if you know my love, if you live in my love, if you're a people who recover your first love, then, then I will give you paradise. I will give you eternal life. That's, that's where the life cycle of a church can end. You know, plants die. And I have never seen a plant resurrected from the dead. Trust me, I've killed a lot of plants in my time. I've revived nearly dead plants, but when they're completely dead, they don't revive. With people, it's different, isn't it? Christian people, I said before, you know, you're like you, you grow, you become a teenager, you become a young adult, you might reproduce, you get older, you plateau, you... you you retire, you die, but if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's not actually the end of the story, is it? You rise again to live forever. And that's actually what the life cycle of a church is meant to be as well. The life cycle of a church isn't meant to be planted, stabilised, plateaued, decline and die. No, the life cycle of a church is meant to be that having been planted and having grown and becoming established a church, having become an established church, we forever renew our love for Jesus. And we forever grow in him. And then the church won't die. Rather, one day, 
all those who belong to that church will be together again in a far bigger universal family of God, worshipping God forever, munching on fruit from the tree of life, enjoying paradise, beauty and pleasure and tranquility and peace and harmony and excellence forever and ever. Friends, that is the promise for every person and every church that has first love for Jesus. Shall we pray? We thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that you spoke to this church long ago, and we thank you that through your words to them, you've spoken to us this morning. And we pray, Father, that this church would be a church that loves you and loves the gospel and loves the people of this community and shines brightly the love of the Lord Jesus Christ into the lives of others. We pray that this church would not plateau or decline, but that it would grow, that it would be a wonderful place of fellowship and love and unity and gospel work. And we pray that before us would be that great hope, not of a church that dies, but of a church that lives forever. But we thank you that one day, Jesus, you're coming again, and one day you'll bring about eternal paradise. Until then, please renew our love for you and for the gospel. For Jesus' sake. Amen.